Hey, Ken's mentioned um, it's Memorial Day weekend. This was originally uh, for Civil War uh, deaths, fatalities, those who died on both sides of the Civil War. It was originally called Decoration Day. And then after that, in the 1900s, it was changed to Memorial Day to recognize all those who died in the service of this country, those who had bound themselves together in mutual defense of their homeland and their families. That's a good thing. This is also Pentecost Sunday. Did you know that? This is 50 days since Resurrection Sunday. We don't follow much of a liturgical calendar, but if you go back to that first Pentecost Sunday, we say that's the birthday of the church. That's the day Jesus kept his promise. He told his disciples, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to send one just like me for you. And on that Pentecost Sunday, the Spirit came, inhabited believers in a way that had not been true before. And part of the Spirit in believers was that he now bound them together in what we call today the church. That had not been true before Pentecost Sunday. That individuals now, you can read about this in Ephesians 3 and 4, Individuals were bound together by the Holy Spirit that simply had not been true before. Back to this country's origins and the need to to bind together. I was reading part of the Declaration of Independence last night, thinking about the message today, and you know it's a great document all on its own. However, you peg it in history, but listen to the last sentence of that declaration. And this is the last thing said above the names of the folks who signed it. It reads, With a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, so trusting God, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. So the guys founding this country, they said two things here as they wound down right before they signed their name. We're trusting ourselves to God... And we are mutually binding ourselves together in this cause of freedom. That was a big deal. I, I may mention more of this later, but guys, what it costs these guys, if you just read their stories, you know, we bask in the sunlight of the freedoms that they provided. But if you read what happened to the folks who signed this declaration, to most of them, they paid with their lives. They did pay with their lives, their fortunes, their families the cost of freedom for them. And they got it that they said, we're going to trust God going forward and we're going to bind ourselves together. That was the call. Listen to a few quotes from those folks. This is from Benjamin Franklin. They're contemplating independence from British hegemony. You know, things that they, they pushed this for a long time. They tried to make things right. But he tells them as they're thinking about revolting from King George, this is no small thing, most powerful nation on earth in their day, Franklin famously said, we must indeed all hang together or most assuredly we shall hang separately. We will stand united or we will fall divided. John Dickinson included this verse in his Liberty Song, 1768. Then join hand in hand, brave Americans all. By uniting we stand, by dividing we fall. Same thought. Stand united. Patrick Henry, I believe this was 1798. This was right near the end of his life. A couple months later he he would die. But he rose up in opposition 
I can't remember if it was the Virginia or the Kentucky Compact or Accord or whatever, but anyway, it was legislation that would have essentially gutted the federal nation of the country, and it would have allowed states to override federal law. And, and Henry looked at this and he said, uh, he saw it for what it was, that it would not be a United States. They would be disparate states, each making up their own mind about things. Now, we would say today the federal government has gone too far probably, but in his day he understood that if the states have too much, if each state can call it as they see it, there is no federal government. There is no united about the United States of America. So he, he did this. He, he rose. He clasped his hands together to display union. And he said, let us trust God and our better judgment to set us right hereafter. United we stand, divided we fall. Let us not split into factions which must destroy that union upon which our existence hangs. These guys all got it. That in the fight that was in their lifetime, in their day, before them, set before them, they understood that it was only by uniting together that they could succeed. If they weren't united, they were going to fail. Their lives would be forfeit. It was absolutely imperative. I had a couple images for you from online, but they're not going to load up today. But if you go to World War II... Just to to uh, boost morale, you you know I can't the, the greatest generation going through the depression and then some of them World War One the depression and World War Two absolutely unbelievable in their lifetime. Well, you've got to attend to morale. Winston Churchill knew this in England too. If people if their morale falls, you're in trouble. If we've got a sense of despair, we're going to fail again. So during World War Two. The federal government was putting out posters and caused to boost morale. And they were these great graphic images of united we stand, divided we fall. There's another great one, absolute perfect Americana. It's a family, a husband and a wife and a daughter and a son. They're looking together up like to the sky. And it, the images with our families were uniting together. You know, as the United States faced both European and Asian powers that wanted to take over the world. So it's the same thought, united we stand, divided we fall. So, what do you do? And when we're talking about this this morning, this is when we face opposition, and not just opposition, but concerted opposition. How do we face that? And specifically this morning, as we walk through some of Nehemiah, what does it look like for us to do that corporately, either as a family or, or my, my key imperative for us this morning is as a church? What does it look like for our families? What does it look like for our church to face the opposition that comes our way because we claim Christ, because we stand for the gospel, because we believe that there's a God in heaven who rules and has ordained that through Christ, he's building his church on earth. Jesus said the gates of hell will not overcome the church, but I think he said that because at times it's going to look like it is, that God's cause of the church is failing. So Jesus says, he, he reassures us, the gates of hell will not prevail over the church. But friends, we are in a spiritually pitched battle. And while we enjoy all kinds of freedom today, and we can come and go as we please, and there's good food to eat, and there's plenty, we have nothing to complain about in these realms. Friends, we still live in a world that's ruled by the God of this world, Satan, who hates God, he hates us, and there's only two sides in this battle. There's, there's God and his kingdom, 
and there's Satan and his kingdom, and there's nobody in between. There's no neutral ground. So as we face spiritual opposition going forward, how do we do that? And Nehemiah talks about that. We're in week three of the series, Don't Quit, Lessons from Nehemiah. And he's going to face his second of six points of opposition with the rest of the folks there in Jerusalem. And this is an opposition uh, called conspiracy. Conspiracy, we'll talk more about this in just a minute. If you've missed the first uh, couple of messages in this series, very briefly, Nehemiah is just this great godly guy. And he serves the most powerful man on earth in his day, King Artaxerxes, the Persian king. When the story starts, it's in Susa. It would be in modern-day Iran, down in the southern part of that country. And when he hears from his brothers that have returned from Jerusalem, and remember, Jerusalem had been shambles, had been destroyed under Nebuchadnezzar. But folks had returned under King Cyrus in 538 B.C. And they'd rebuilt the temple. And then later, 13 years prior to Nehemiah, they'd gone back with Ezra. Well, some of these folks come back and they talk to Nehemiah and they say, listen, it's tough going in Jerusalem. There's despair. It's a very difficult time. And the walls are broken down and the city basically does not exist as a city. And when Nehemiah hears this about God's city, remember Jerusalem for the Jews was God's dwelling place on earth. And the temple is there. The holy, creative God of the universe dwells again in the temple in Jerusalem, but the city is a shambles. And so Nehemiah loves God and loves God's things, and he weeps and he mourns and he fasts and he prays and he develops a plan. And with the king's blessing, he returns to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and specifically to rebuild the defensive wall of Jerusalem. So as we work through this this morning be asking yourself the question, related to your family or related to the church, what does it look like for me? What does it look like for us to face opposition together? That's the key theme. If you've got a study sheet, uh, bring it out. We're in Nehemiah 4. If you've got your Bible, you're free to read there. This is from the New American Standard. I'm reading verses 7 through 23. Now, when Sanballat... Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God, and because of them we set up a guard against them day and night. Thus in Judah it was said, by the way in the Hebrew this would this would be sing-song. It would rhyme and it would be like a little ditty. The strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish. We ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Our enemy said they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn, then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people in families with their swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan... Then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work, while 
half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the the breastplates. And the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand, doing the work, and the other holding a weapon. Uh, If you've heard the the, uh, phrase sword and trowel, this is the imagery. This is where it comes from. As for the builders, the guys doing the manual labor, setting the stone, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. At that time, I also said to the people, Let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Stinky, working hard all day, not changing. Each took his weapon even to the water. So here's the second form of opposition. And if you look in verse 8, it says all of them conspired. When we think of conspiracy, we're usually thinking of a secret plan. And and in this case, that's true also. But the Hebrew word means to be bound together. So what this is saying is that the enemy, the corporate opposition to what God's doing here in Jerusalem, they have bound themselves together. They're uniting in their opposition to Jerusalem. So it's a, the conspiracy here is more that they have bound themselves together than it is simply that it's unknown, that it's a secret. A group has bound themselves together against God and against his people. And if you look at verse 7, you see that the number of adversaries has increased. If you remember in chapter 2, there were three, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. But now there's... Sanballat and Tobiah, and Geshem is now called the Arabs plural. And Tobiah is not referred to an Ammonite, but now we've got the Ammonites plural. And now we've added those from Ashdod, that's one of the Philistine cities, and the whole Persian division of the land there takes its name from that city. So if you remember last time we talked, Jerusalem was surrounded by opposition north, east, and south, and now it's surrounded by opposition north, east, south, and west five against one this is a lot like uh, if you know your recent history this is a lot like the opposition the young nation of jerusalem faced subsequent to its independence in 1948 all the surrounding people were opposed to god and god's things in jerusalem in verse 8 it also says they wanted to cause a disturbance it says by fighting against jerusalem by killing some, verse 11, and by entering at every available wall opening, that's verse 12. And their, their hope all along is to stop the work of rebuilding. That's the deal. So it's by any means possible, that's what they want to accomplish. So if you think about this, remember they started with simply verbal mocking and ridicule, and that didn't stop them. So phase two is we want to intimidate them. So remember at this point, the wall would be easily entered through various areas in which it had been knocked down. And so their conspiracy, they're bound together. And the plan is we're going to flood through the walls at a given time when they have absolutely no idea we're coming. 
And guys, this is the thing. They don't have to pull the walls down further. They don't have to have a great military victory. What they have to do is dishearten the builders. And so they think if we flood in, they don't know we're coming, we'll kill some, there will be confusion, there will be despair, they'll be despondent, and the work will stop. And frankly, by the time the king hears about this in Persia, we'll just get into a he said, she said debate. We'll be able to carry this off, and we'll be fine. So we're going to rush in secretly. They won't expect us. We're going to kill some, and they'll give up. That's the thought. That's the conspiracy. So how does Nehemiah respond? Not only Nehemiah, but how does the group in that city respond? And look at the first thing it says in verse 9. And both of these words are key. It says, we prayed. Not just Nehemiah, we prayed. You remember we said that Nehemiah was inclusive. He was a guy who built coalition. And this text doesn't just say, I prayed. It says, we prayed. You remember when he got there, he said he's just arrived, but he says, boy, guys, we're in a pickle here. We should arise and build in that same inclusive language he uses here of their prayer. It's not Nehemiah getting off by himself and praying, though he may have done that too. The text says, we corporately prayed. Guys, this is the first thing we should always do, whatever the opposition we face is. When we pray, we're telling God, Lord, you're God and we're not. You control outcomes. We don't. We have limited power. We have limited ingenuity. Maybe there's some thing, things we can do. Maybe not. But, Lord, we, we declare our faith in you by our first response to whatever that point of opposition is by declaring we trust you. We entrust ourselves to your care. We're asking for your help. We're asking for your wisdom. That was the first thing they did. Guys, when we run ahead, I hear something and I act. You know, I usually get it wrong. When I simply act in the moment on the impulse out of my emotion, typically haven't thought it through, haven't prayed it through, haven't maybe gotten counsel from from others, I almost always get it wrong. The first thing Nehemiah and company does here is they entrust themselves to God in prayer. They pray first. Prayer is not their last resort. It's their first resort. We're entrusting ourselves to God. And the second thing they did was they set up a guard. This is good, isn't it, right? So if I pray for God to bless me and to provide food for my family, do I sit at the table and wait for food to magically appear? I do not. I go and I work. Because as often as not, God's providence is demonstrated through us, right? So they've prayed, but this isn't some super spiritual group that thinks we've prayed and so everything's done. They pray, they commit themselves and their ways to God, and then they go and they do something. And they set a guard at the wall. Verse 9, we set up a guard against them day and night. These guys are watchful. Verse 13, I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, the places that the enemy would most likely come through. They're being shrewd. And along with the new guard, they also consolidated their forces. You see this later in verses 22 and 23. What you would have had, and you'll see this later in the book of Nehemiah, there are not many people living in the city. It's still a rubble heap. It's not a nice place to live. So many of the people building the wall, they're coming in from farmsteads and homes that are not part of Jerusalem. They're outside. They're away from Jerusalem. They're coming in. They're working during the day, and they're going home at night. 
But for this brief time, Nehemiah says, guys, listen, I've got to ask you to do something. Don't go home at night. Stay here. We need as many people in the city, feet on the ground right here as possible. So until the wall is rebuilt, would you not go home? Would you dedicate this time? You're going to work during the day and you're going to stay in your stinking clothes all night so that you're ready to defend the city should the enemy come in. So they consolidated their forces. You know, when we get to Lion and Lamb Church next Sunday, uh, it will only be after a lot of people have put part of their life on hold to tear out and to replace and to paint and to scrape. There's been a lot of work there over the last, I don't know, Mark, six months, eight months, something. It's eaten up our calendars and our time, but we know there's an end. So you set aside, you put some things on hold while you consolidate and you get this job done. Well, that's what they did too. Nehemiah said, we need you guys here. You know, don't go on vacation. Don't go back home at night. We need you right here in the city. The next thing you you see Nehemiah doing was he addressed their fears. You see this in verse 14. You know, fear is like cancer. And if a, you'll see this, by the way, in sporting events. Do you notice sometimes how one team just rises, they surge, and another team just folds? Well, most of that's emotional, it's psychological. So the, the team on the ascendancy, they get a couple of baskets and suddenly we're hot, we can't lose. That's all up here, right? Well, Nehemiah knows that this fear goes unaddressed, we're in trouble. If fear gets hold of the people, there's going to be despair and the enemy will already have defeated us. So he speaks to their fear and he tells them, don't be afraid. But when he does, he says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. It's not that they're not afraid. It's not that there aren't real threats against their lives. There are. But he says, To confront your fear, remember who it is you belong to. Now think about this. Nehemiah knows, like Ezra, he knows the Bible, he knows Jewish history. In this same city under King Hezekiah, in fact, he'll say here later, uh, verse 20, our God will fight for us. Do you remember the story about King Hezekiah and the king of Assyria? The king of Assyria had swept in, taken all the cities of Judah captive, the only one standing was Jerusalem. And he says, I'm going to take you down too. And Hezekiah and Isaiah, they pray to God. And God says, I'm going to fight for you. And there won't be one arrow that will come over the wall of the city. You trust me. And God wipes them out overnight and they flee. This was impossible. Physically, humanly, this was impossible. Nehemiah, I have no doubt, has girded his mind with what God had done for them in the past. This is the nation that was redeemed from Egypt. This is the God who had conquered Egypt, the most powerful nation in its day, routed them and their gods and part of the Red Sea and given them water and food in the wilderness and stopped the Jordan River. And the text says in places like Joshua that God gave them victory over armies and nations greater than they were. So when Nehemiah speaks to their fears, he says, remember who you belong to. Guys, if we only see ourselves and our resources... There's reason for despair and despondency. That's not the thing. We don't want to think or fight like mere men. We want to think and we want to conduct spiritual warfare like those who know there's a spiritual battle. And our God, he's powerful, more powerful, no comparison. 
to any other force that can be arrayed against us. So he addresses their fear. He says, remember who you belong to. Our God will fight for us. Nehemiah knows he's on God's side and God's on their side. That's what we want to know. We're on God's side. God's on our side. This is something else very, very personal. I, this is very touching for me. It's strategic and it's shrewd, but it really makes this personal. You know, if I tell you we're doing something, we're building a church or we're doing one thing or another, if you're not vested in it, if you have no stake in it, you might say, oh, okay, and forget about it. Or if someone says, uh, somebody else over there, someplace else, they're in trouble, and, and you think, I don't know them. I'm not very personal. I'm not very motivated. But what if it's your wife? What if it's your children? What if it's your neighbor? What if it's the person sitting next to you this morning? What if their lives are threatened or their property or their fortunes or their sacred honor? How do you feel about it then? See, Nehemiah knew something, and this is what he did. He made it personal for everybody in the city. Guys, this wasn't just about the wall, was it? You remember in their day, Jerusalem is the dwelling place of God Most High in the temple, in the city. This is God's home. This is God's home. It's not just about a wall. It's about a place for God and God's people. So, verse 13, Nehemiah says, I stationed the people in families. You know the Jewish nation is arranged by families, right? So this makes sense. This is consistent. But think about it this way. If I'm in front of the wall and the enemy rushes through with their spears and their swords, who's next to me? And whose lives am I defending? I'm defending my wife. That's personal. I'm defending my children. I'm defending my neighbors. And that's exactly what he tells them. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your houses. This isn't just about a wall or a city, guys. This is about your family. This is about the people you know and love. Be ready to fight for them. This is personal. You have a vested interest in what goes on in in this city and what happens with these walls. Guys, you know, the world is, is uh, it's huge on one hand today, but it's so small on the other because of communication. You know, we hear about news almost as it happens, in fact, oftentimes as it happens, don't we? And you can be simply overwhelmed. What do I get involved in and what do I not get involved in? Lord, what have you called me and to whom have you called me to help and defend and fight for? We'll define fight a little bit more here in just a minute. And so there are the persecuted believers in other parts of the world. There are people with physical needs around the world. And do we want to be a part of all that? Absolutely. Absolutely. But listen, this is what we can't ignore. Don't ignore the people next to you. If we're saying, what are the fights God's called me to? I'll bet they have to do with your family and with the church God's made you a part of. Okay? We can start there. We can say other things. We'll figure those out. But can we say it's safe to start right where we're at with the relationships God has put us in? That those are the spiritual battles apart from any others. Those are the ones we know God has called us to participate in. That we are engaged on behalf of our families and the church we're a part of. That would be a safe beginning place. 
Nehemiah made it personal. It should be personal for us as well. And the last thing you see here is they simply got back to work. Now, they're compromised, aren't they? Because part of the force, part of Nehemiah's own servants, they're just carrying around the stuff for war. They're carrying swords and spears and breastplates, probably helmets. They're not working. They're just carrying the stuff. And others who are working one hand, and I got my sword in the other, and they're compromised, but the work goes on. And this was always about the work. The enemy wants to disrupt the work. And Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem, they didn't fall for it in this point of opposition either. They got back to work. Carried their load with one hand, weapon in the other. So what you see, there's a conspiracy against God's people and God's work. The opposition, the adversaries have bound themselves together to harm God's people and God's work. And so what Nehemiah and company did was they prayed. They set up a guard. That means they were watchful. They consolidated their forces. They, they drew themselves together. They faced their fears. They made it personal, and they got back to the work. I'd intended to leave a lot more time for application this morning, but who was I fooling, right? Who was I fooling? Uh, application for me on this message is all important this morning, so let me let me talk about some things. And you may, by the way, you may disagree. I've got ten minutes left. Uh, the way I shade things, I'm going to talk about politics for a little bit. I'm going to talk about some other things. You may disagree with a, a fine point here or there, uh, but I think we can agree on the the major things that we're talking about here. Okay, so if I don't say something quite right, if I offend your sensibilities in one way or another, don't throw the message out. Okay. Okay, the oppositions, these are some of the oppositions I can think of today that we face. And, and, and as we walk through this, remember, uh, our warfare is, is spiritual, okay? What we don't want to do is create an us versus them. It's me against that person. It's me against that group. It's our group humanly against that group humanly, Right? Our opposition is spiritual, ultimately. Now, the enemy, Satan, can energize people and groups and movements against God and God's people and God's plans. And that's what we're talking about. Fellow humans like ourselves, lost in sin and spiritual darkness, they are not ultimately the enemy. They are pawns in a greater war, okay? So we don't want an us. It's us. We're the good guys. Those other people, they are the bad guys. That's not what we're saying. We have to address other people who are part of what the enemy's doing, but we, we don't want to make this mistake, okay? We've been rescued out of sin and darkness. We want to remember them as folks who need a Redeemer just as we did. So, uh, government, political coercive efforts against Christians, the church, and those who avow what might be labeled conservative religious principles. That's a mouthful. But the last election cycle, uh, there was conspiracy within the, the uh, IRS to intimidate... People who had banded together to have a voice in politics. Friends, this was a conspiracy, any way you spell the word or define it. From the highest level of the IRS down, they were targeting conservative religious groups to minimize their ability to have a voice in the political process. Friends, in their minds, they might have said, politics are dirty, this is dirty, this is politics as usual. But listen, the effect was they were trying to silence voices of faith. That's the deal. 
So whatever we think about this party or that party, here's an effort, this is not by accident, that people of faith are being throttled in their attempt to have a voice in the democratic republic process of which we are a part. This is the enemy at work, whatever the people doing it thought. Christians need to band together. Uh, one of the things, I always step on toes here when I talk about politics, okay? I get it right or I get it wrong. I get it too right, I get it too wrong. Too right, too left. Um, guys, my view of politics, uh, we talk about it, by the way, in this church a lot because of the time and the place we live. Uh, my ultimate politics are the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, he's the ultimate politician. And until he returns to this earth and sets up his kingdom, everything is provisional. And is politics worth being invested in? Absolutely. Is it the answer? Absolutely not. Okay, absolutely not. We want to invest, though, thinking of this, because we can have a political voice, and because Christians having a political voice is good for this country. It's a good thing that God and God's ways are known. That blesses people. Blessed are the people whose God is Lord. This is a good thing, okay? But politics is not the ultimate answer, but to the degree that we can be helpful, we want to band together in politics. We want to support politicians and causes and referenda and all the other things that we believe in God's name would be good things for ourselves and our neighbors. We want to pray. We want to prayerfully support. We want to band together. We want to vote for these folks who have God's things God's view at heart. Okay, this is a good thing, but we're facing this kind of opposition. We want to pray and act. By the way, we want to put our money where our mouth is. We want to vote. Please don't tell me you're a Christian you don't vote, okay? Vote if you're a Christian. Another thing we're facing today, concerted effort, conspiracy. Christians in the church are being assaulted in the courts, systematically so, so much that Christians are being ordered to act contrary to faith and conscience. And friends, we've talked about this repeatedly in the past. Christians, by and large, almost always, I'd say in our country, almost 99% of the time, we obey the government. That's what, that's what absolutely God says to do. In Acts, Jesus, Peter, they all say the same thing. Obey the powers that be. They're established and ordained by God. We believe this. Absolutely. The threshold for that is if the government commands me to do what God forbids or forbids what God's commands, my decision is already made. I disobey the civil authority. These Christians, like, sorry, like... Communist China are being sent to re-education camps. Can you say sensitivity training? What's the point of this? It's to change their beliefs. It's to get them to give up their Christian, biblically informed values. Friends, this is a conspiracy from the pit of hell against Christians and against God's people and God's plans. These guys are doing what they should be doing, and we should be supporting them. Guys, they're just like us. These are old women who make cakes. These are young Christian women who take pictures at weddings. These are old women in Seattle that sell flowers. And by the way, if you read their stories, these are gracious, humble people. They are praying, and they'd had regular relationships with these people who wanted them to participate in their homosexual unions. They said no. They knew these people. They'd served these people. These were gracious Christians, acting in ways I hope we would too. 
But friends, we need to band together with these folks financially, prayerfully. We need to do just what Nehemiah did. We need to pray and we need to act. These are conspiracies, again, minimize in our minds that this is some person's face. Understand this is spiritual opposition being expressed through human courts and human agencies and individuals, okay? So our fight is it's spiritual primarily. We need to take cues from people like Alliance Defending Freedom. Nehemiah put a watchman on the wall. Guys, this church, we're looking at this. We've already talked to you about some of it. When we do... Ministry safe was a no-brainer where we just say to parents, your kids are safe when they come to Lion Lamb. This is a no-brainer. But we're getting into hiring and firing policies. We're getting into building use policies because we want to do what Nehemiah did. We want to cut off opportunity for the enemy to cause us to spin our wheels and the work God's called us to to suffer. So we want to listen to the guys on the wall that say, by the way, it looks like they're coming through this hole. You might want to do something about that. We want to do the same thing. Oh, so much to say, so little time. Um, educational system, uh, guys, and, and by this, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not limiting this public school, okay? There's a lot of homeschoolers in here. I'm for all of you. Whatever your educational choice is, we, we want your kids to thrive. But listen, the educational systems we're in, they're stacked against Christian faith. And I don't mean just public education. I mean lots of schools that are nominally Christian are anything but Christian in the way they teach and in the viewpoints of their professors. Your study sheet lists a website. You can look at a, uh, the proportion of professors on college campuses that teach social and natural sciences. And uh, friends, there's very few believers among them because they can't get in the door. If you're an evangelical Christian, you almost always will not be hired or you will not be given tenure in these institutions. And many of these are Christian institutions. The educational system is stacked against the Bible and the God of the Bible and Christian faith. And our students, our children, the people we know and love, they're being spiritually raped in the institutions in which many of us are sending them. Now, please hear me. We have teachers in this room. I'm for you. We have people in public education. I'm for you. All I'm saying is we want to have our eyes open Who's affecting our kids? Who's got our kids' hearts? Who's winning our children's souls? That's where this goes. And they are going up a rigged setup. In academia today, it's set against us, by and large. Uh, PBS, I love PBS on one hand, sorry, and I hate them on the other. You know, they're one of the biggest purveyors of atheistic naturalism you'll find on the planet. You remember, and they're carrying on Carl Sagan's mantle today, aren't they? I mean, in their natural science shows. Sagan said this, For me, it's far better to grasp the universe as it really is than to persist in delusion, however satisfying and reassuring. He's telling Christians, you're delusional. And PBS carries this cause today. It's not just PBS, but I mean, they're the easy. National Geographic does the same thing. You watch shows on nature, almost all of them will tell you there is no God and we are the product of matter and chance over time. Friends, this is anti-Christ in nature. This isn't just some programmer saying, this is what I want to program. This is spiritual warfare to shut down what God attempts to do and intends to do on this earth. If you're a, if you're a college student, if you're a high school student, 
If you're a Christian student in education today, you've got to be getting together with other Christians. You've got to be praying for each other. You've got to be talking about the issues and the challenges to faith. You've got to be banding together. And in the church, too. Kent and others have done this great stuff. Uh, Focus on the Family put out um, True You. True You. Guys, there's no problem with information. The Bible's true. God's who he said he is. And we have the best information. Christians don't need to be afraid of science, investigation. We're for it. Uh, it it's not information that's the problem. It's, it's who's winning the hearts. We've got apologetics, lots of apologetics. We're good on that. We should know that. But really, it's about winning hearts at the end of the day. Uh, let me mention this one, too, as I wind down. Uh, the plethora of, uh, did I say I, equal opportunity, offensive, uh, the plethora of school activities, homeschoolers, I'm talking to you, to sports and social activities. You know, uh, this national religion of this country is its sports. Friends and Christians bow at the idol of sports with the best of them. If you ask yourself, I, I didn't see somebody on Sunday morning at church. Oh, well, we were at this little league soccer, you know, the, you know, the championships on Sunday. You've got to be there. I'm thinking, really? What does that communicate to your son and daughter? Well, it's just summer league softball. Oh. God should take a vacation from us. We're taking a vacation from him. Do you see where this goes? Families are being torn apart, Christian families, by activities. And friend, uh, you know, I have to give caveat after caveat after caveat whenever I talk about this stuff. Can you tell I'm passionate about these things? My good friend Steve Green once said to me, Mike, you've got to slow down, you know, on these things you're passionate about. You're overwhelming me. So apologies you're overwhelmed this morning. What was I going to tell you anyway? <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I am not against things or stuff. I'm for them. I'm not against Facebook. I'm not against technology, cell phones, television. I'm not against PBS. I'm not against school, academics, stuff. Whatever the stuff is, I'm for it, okay? The thing is this. How does it fit into your life? If I'm a parent discipling my children, am I discipling my children? Or are 10 or 12 other people in 10 or 12 other venues? That's the deal. If I'm watching TV, is that feeding my soul and increasing my faith or is it tearing it down? If Christ is building this church, and this is my concluding argument, that's the work of God on the earth today is Christ is building this church, am I part of the building process? Or am I, I at Little League soccer on Sunday morning? See, that's what it comes down to for me. It's not are they okay or not. They're fine. Where do they fit in? Where do they fit in? That's the thing. So let me close with this. God's work on the earth today is not building right now the city of Jerusalem. It's building the church. So when we look at our activities... And when we look and see what's going on around us, are, can we conclude this? We are part of God's building program today. That with Nehemiah and company in his day, we are facing the opposition and we are plugged into God's building program. That we're praying. That we're committed to sharing the gospel with those who haven't heard it and don't know. That we're praying not just for those fellows like us who are being persecuted, but we're praying for their persecutors like Jesus did and the early church did. Are we part 
of building the church of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that matters at the end of the day. Everything else is gravy. Jesus is building his church today. Are we part of that building program? Amen. Lord, God forgive us, convict us. Show us those places and ways in our heart and our practices, Lord, where we're dishonoring you by checking out on the work. Holy Spirit, would you lead us and guide us in how to apply your call on our lives as individuals, as parents, as siblings, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as Lion and Lamb Church, as part of the church of Jesus Christ. Lord God, would you open our eyes to see your call on us? Would you help us to forsake all other minor things? Would you help us to engage in your work today? In Jesus' name, for his sake, amen.